Hello and welcome to our podcast, Within the Mist, a hidden place where we walk into the dark and clouded unknown. I am your host, Gary, equipped with my own personal gas mask, here to entertain and inform you about the likes of cryptids, ghosts, and other mysteries. I am joined today with my lovely, sickly sweet, and co-host's wife, Goldie Ann. Sickly sweet? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, uh, ask me again at the end of this episode and you can make a decision for yourself. I'm scared. Well, if you're scared of that, you might be even more frightened of what I have coming next. <laughs> Probably. Do you know what you call a cat who likes to pass gas? Gross. Not exactly. You call him a puss in toots. Oh my god. <sighs> See, now are you scared? I'm scared of you. Does I have that something help? <laughs> It helps, but today's episode involves terrifying encounters with a nighttime prowler that attacks his victims with a noxious nerve agent. Unlike my jokes, these may be upsetting to some of our listeners. <laughs> and stink. Hey. Sorry. Harshness. We are storytellers who have gathered information on some of our favorite mysteries to bring to you. We don't attempt to scare our listeners on purpose. Well, maybe just a little. Listener discretion is always advised. Now, today's story had two incredible sources to gain information about it. First, there was unexplained 347 strange sightings, incredible occurrences, and puzzling physical phenomena by Jerome Clark. The second book is The Mad Gasser of Mattoon, Dispelling the Hysteria. By Scott Maruna. That sounds like a pun just waiting to happen. It is a mouthful, but it is a good read for anyone who's interested in this subject after the episode. But first, a word from our sponsor. Now welcome back. Let us begin. The wooden chair protested loudly to being leaned back onto its rear two legs. It threatened to spill the slightly overweight man onto the floor and onto his head. The man conceded to the warning and returned the position of the chair back to all four points behind the large desk. The man, a member of the Federal Bureau of Investigations, was called in and given the small office with its sparse furnishings to use as a base of operations. He returned his attention to the contents of the desk. It was completely enveloped with all forms of folders, papers, lab results, and photographs. Every article before him was a piece of a puzzle that the FBI had been called to the small town of Mattoon, Illinois in 1944 to solve. With the country's attention focused on the war in Germany, National security on the home front was as crucial as the fighting on the front lines. A threat of the most mysterious form had created an environment in which the residents cowered behind locked doors of their homes. Someone, or something, was assaulting people in their homes, leaving them nauseous, incapacitated, and completely helpless. Dang. Worse... The series of events had consequences for a larger threat to the very nation itself. Even with all the evidence, the people, 
the police, and even the FBI were no closer to any answers. So join us today as we delve into the mystery of the Mad Gasser of Matum. This is going to be very interesting. I noticed that you're <clears throat> laughing quite a bit about this one. Yeah, well, it's just all the, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what's coming. I mean, I kind of know what's coming. But it's just comical. Well, I will try and add a more terrifying uh, twist to it then for you. I think I don't think you're going to need to. No. Have you ever had experience with toxic gases? Um, yeah. What? How so? Um, do we talk about this on air? If you want everyone else to know. <laughs> and don't say me. No, I'm not going to say you. <laughs> but do you have an experience with toxic gases? No, not really. Okay. Sorry. Well, no, it's, it's for me, I had a horrible experience with toxic gases in during my uh, basic training with the United States Army all the way back in 1991. One of the tasks that they give you during basic training is to gain confidence in your protective mask, you know, your gas mask. So they take you into a small room, about five or six at a time. In the center of a room is a small jar or a little vase. The room has nothing in it. It's a dirt floor, four walls, one door, no windows, nothing. It is bleak. And then they drop something into the vase and it starts smoking out. And you're all standing in there in your full uh, mop gear, mission-oriented protective posture suits, and your protective mask. And you're just breathing and the drill sergeant comes to each of you and checks you out, makes sure that you're doing okay, that you're breathing normally. Then when everyone is comfortable and you think, okay, this is not a big deal, they make everyone take off their masks. That's when the problems begin <laughs> because what they use is a CS gas. It's a riot gas, tear gas. And you're in an enclosed space that is full of the smoke. So all of a sudden your eyes are tearing. You can't see. Your nose is just basically nonstop running snot. You're choking, coughing. You're, I mean, you are completely miserable going into hell. And then they make you stay there. And depending upon how evil the drill sergeants are, they can make you do a task before they'll let you out. I have heard of people having to do push-ups before they could let would let them out of the room. Uh, for me, I had to spell my entire name uh, using the Army alphabet. So, you know, Golf, Alpha, Romeo, Yankee, and so forth before I could go out. Then they open the door and you come running out. You have to have your arms spread, you know, showing that you're okay. You know, I'm all right. I'm all right. And the funniest thing is, is that they have two people out there waiting for you. One is a photographer. And yes, I, <laughs> yes, I do have a picture of me coming out of the gas chamber. Have that I was seen in this? the actual yearbook. That's why I needed to find my army yearbook oh, for my basic training. There is I a picture in there that. of me. The second person is another drill sergeant who's just there to keep you from running into the trees. <laughs> That's it, hilarious. It, for everyone watching, it is. For everyone experiences, it's not. That's terrifying. Yes. So I have had my own experiences with uh, toxic gases. Now, for the citizens of Mattoon, their experiences were even more terrifying. Chapter 1. Gas Stoves 
and paralysis. Mattoon of 1944 was a stereotypical illustration of a small rural Midwestern town. Located in the southeastern part of central Illinois, it would be expected that the citizens would be far removed from being the center of attention of anything bizarre and as strange as the events we will cover today. Even before the town realized the existence of a mad gasser, or otherwise called a phantom anesthetist, existed, that would hold its citizens in fear, events would commence during the early morning hours of August 31st, 1944, on the quiet street of Grant Avenue. Urban Rafe was startled out of a deep sleep, and he was feeling very ill. His stomach was churning uncontrollably. His stomach was churning uncontrollably, and his first consideration that it was from something from dinner did not sit well with his digestion. However, he had never experienced anything this horrible before, and despite the late hour, he awoke his wife sleeping soundly next to him to complain that he felt nauseated and weak and suffered from a fit of vomiting. Urban moved from the bed towards the bathroom. The darkened room began to swim and spin, threatening to knock the man from his feet. It took all of his concentration and willpower just to manage the few feet from the bed to the bathroom before he vomited. It was several minutes on his knees before the feeling of dizziness and nausea began to subside. Slowly and still feeling the effects, he returned to the bedroom. He wanted to question his wife about leaving the gas on in the kitchen stove. Going over the symptoms he was experiencing in his head, he suspected that his symptoms seemed very similar to gas exposure. Perhaps there was a gas leak in his own home. His wife, her voice still groggy with sleep, replied that she had not left the gas running. She tried to rise from her bed in order to verify that the pilot light on the stove had not gone out. In an instant, her sleepy voice turned to one of terror as she found to her disbelief that she could not move her arms nor her legs. She was completely paralyzed and unable to leave her bed. Urban made his way on stumbling legs to his wife's side. Out of pure desperation, he lifted her small frame from the bed and towards the door. It seemed that every step was about to be the last before he, too, would lose the sensations of movement in his limbs and collapse on the floor of the hallway leaving both to perish to some unseen threat. They died? Did I say they died? To perish means to die. He felt like he was going to perish. Oh, okay. Don't get ahead of me in the story. Okay. Now, Urban considered it a miracle that he was able to reach the front door and open it to Yay! the fresh air. Each breath he took seemed to dispel the nausea and paralyzing effects until he had enough strength to make it to the neighbor's home. Just minutes later, according to published reports, 
A woman in another neighboring home less than a mile away also tried to get out of bed and discovered that she, too, was completely paralyzed. She had been awakened by the sound of her daughter coughing, but found herself unable to leave her bed. She also regained mobility to escape the home with her daughter. Fear of what would occur if they had remained in the home seemed too frightening to consider. Authorities on the scene seemed unable to explain the causes, as there was no evidence of a gas leak, nor any lingering effects to the victims. How could two unconnected households experience the same effects, the same paralysis? It had been chalked up to an environmental cause, and the two cases closed as quickly as they were opened by the Mattoon police. With no cause and no permanent damage, it seemed unnecessary to pursue the case. That would be a mistake within the next 24 hours. There, are you happy now? Very much. Chapter 2, Fear and Paralysis Eileen Kearney was alone with her two young daughters on the Friday night of September 1st, 1944, less than 24 hours from the previous two cases. Her husband, Bert, was working as a taxi driver, and it was normal that he would be working late into the night. Oddly, on this evening, Eileen had the feeling that a pair of unseen eyes were hiding in the nighttime shadows. They were watching her within her very own home. She had never experienced such a dread before in the quiet neighborhood of Marshall Avenue. In fact, she usually felt completely safe and knew her neighbors quite well. But tonight was different. She had been unable to shake the feeling, regardless of how hard she tried to convince herself that she was being silly. The fear was enough to make her startle at any noise and have the small hairs on the back of her neck stand up straight. She would spend minutes peering out of her living room window onto the street and looking for the cause of her unexplained terror. The fear built and grew to a point enough to result in her asking her sister to visit for the evening just to keep her company until her husband returned home. When Martha Reedy, her sister, arrived, Eileen explained part of the reason for her concerns of being left alone tonight. She had run an errand in the town earlier that afternoon, and this included cashing a check for a large sum of money, which was now located within the house. Due to the August heat, the windows could not be closed, and the housewife had been nervous that a thief might have seen her with the money and be roaming in the area. In fact, the newspapers were full of stories connected to the war about foreign spies, and there was even a manhunt in the nearby Peoria for an escaped German prisoner of war. It seemed that evil was surrounding them at every turn. The money, the newspaper, and the fact that her husband was not home was enough to give the poor woman cause to fear. Eileen felt better now that her, there was another adult in the home with her. 
Everyone was retiring to their bedroom as the hour was getting late, and the taxi-driving husband would not be home for quite some time. It was at 11 p.m. as she was about to drift off to sleep that Eileen noticed the shadows outside of her bedroom window slightly stir. It could have been just another case of her jumping at shadows, except this time there was an accompanying odor. The air seemed to be getting thick with the smell of something overly sweet, like a sugary molasses. At first, she thought it was merely the smell of the flowers planted just outside and below the bedroom window. But the nagging sensation from earlier in the night returned. Eileen paused for a moment and then mustered her courage to attempt to rise from her bed in order to investigate the window. It was then, as she attempted to rise, that her legs would not move. No matter how hard she tried, none of her limbs had the ability to function. In the same bed with her, one of her small daughters was crying. The child had also become completely paralyzed. Ugh, that's terrifying. Now for Eileen, with the strength only seen in a mother fighting to protect her child, she fought against the paralyzing effect. The best she could muster was to roll to the edge of her bed and collapse to the wooden bedroom floor with a solid thud. <clears throat> Immobile, the only thing the two victims could do was call out for help. Screams that were dulled by the effects of whatever had occurred to them beginning to have its effect on their vocal cords and mouth. Luckily, the sound of the fall and the faint cries for help was just enough to alert Eileen's sister in another room of the house. Martha opened the bedroom door to also become assaulted by the same overpowering odor. Whatever it was, it had an immediate effect on her, and she felt a tingling numbness crawling up her legs and fingertips. Before the full paralysis could overtake her, she raced out of the house to the next-door neighbors. The fresh air removed the paralysis from her limbs as she banged on the door for help. As if by fate, Bert was just returning home. The headlights of his taxicab illuminated a dark silhouette leaning into the open window of their bedroom. The shadow attempted to duck downwards in the hopes of evading detection from the light. Concern for his family spurred him to race faster from the street to the driveway of the home. The dark figure was at a distance, and the husband was only able to make out the faintest of characteristics. Whatever it was, it was tall and thin, dressed completely in black, complete with a tight-fitting cap. It's a boogeyman. In this case, a very scary boogeyman, who seemed to be man-like, but there was no human face, but rather large reflective eyes on a strange mask. The Babadook. In his hands was a large tubular wand connecting to a canister upon its back by a rubber hose. Bert barely shifted the car into park before he had pushed open his car door and raced towards the figure at the window. Realizing that it had been discovered, the shadow raced away from the window and down a dark alley beside the house. 
The husband took up the chase, his hands clenching to grab onto the figure. He crashed into discarded boxes and trash cans, but he was determined to capture whoever the stranger was. Why do they always fall? With shocking speed and nimbleness with the darkness and considering the apparatus on its back, it easily disappeared. Bert realized that the intruder had made his escape and returned down the alley in defeat to his home, still bathed in the light from his car. Concern over the fate of his wife and daughters, foremost in his mind, all manners of disasters and tragedy played on his imagination. He found the Mattoon police and an ambulance medic surrounding his wife in the front lawn. It was obvious that Eileen was in distress and hysterical about the attack, but the medical team were attempting to assure her and her husband that she and the daughters were safe and unharmed. Eileen continued to complain of suffering from a burning sensation on her lips and throat. The ability to move her limbs again returned in about an hour. The police attempted a search of the neighborhood, walking down the dark alley for any signs of the attacker. But none was left. Wow. By the time the morning edition of the Mattoon newspapers was being left on the front doorstep of the Kearney home, the press had already created a name for the shadowy assailant. Although the press mistakenly documented the Kearneys as the first victims, headlines named him the Mad Gasser of Mattoon. <laughs> so is that a little bit more terrifying to you? Yeah. I was going to say, if you really think about it, uh, just prowlers, peeping toms are scary enough. But if they're carrying something that looks to be a possible weapon, but then something dangerous as a gas that's that'd be just horrible and a gas that seems to be effective in paralyzing and causing people to become sick and dizzy almost immediately it was enough to cause chapter three hysteria the newspaper article captured the imagination of the citizens of Mattoon. now that the mystery illness had a source much less an actual entity proposing to attack the citizens in the city, numerous people described the sudden aroma of a sickly sweet odor in their homes to the police. They claimed to being paralyzed, unable to move from their beds for as long as 90 minutes. None of the eyewitnesses, however, could provide any additional information on the mad gasser. Whatever it or who he was, he was a shadow in the night and able to travel amongst the homes with ease. The newspaper article also attempted to classify the gas utilized by the prowler. They wanted to say that it was a form of chloroform or other form of anesthetic gas. Yeah, it can't be chloroform. Unlike the movies, it takes a lot longer to be effective than a few seconds you are absolutely correct because the ability of such a gas to be effective that quickly in a room with an open window did not match chloroform or any other gas known during the 1940s a panic began to spread across the town with each new newspaper article describing the nightly attacks rather than provide any clue as to who or what was harming them 
The sightings became the sensational topic for the entire town, with the newspaper assumed by many to be the true source of the gasser hysteria. And with the times of reporting events of World War II and spies infiltrating American soil, natural paranoia was running rampant on every front page. However, in the case of Mattoon, paranoia does not explain effectively the proof or the presence of the mad gasser of Mattoon. Chapter 4. A Handkerchief and Lipstick Late on the evening of September 5th, Carl and Bula Cords returned home from an evening out when they returned to their home at 10 p.m. The wife noticed something strange sitting on the porch of their home. It was a white cloth by the front door. Curious, she picked up the fabric. She happened to notice a sweet perfume smell and brought it to her face to take a closer breath. Inhaling was a mistake as she became the latest victim of the mad gasser. According to the woman, I had the sensation similar to coming in contact with an electric current. The feeling raced down my body to my feet and then seemed to settle in my knees. It was a feeling of paralysis. Soon her lips were burning and swelling. Her mouth was bleeding and she was throwing up. Wow. That's worse than the others. Well, she had a direct contact. Remember the others um, just noticed it in the room. Yeah, she right. She breathed it right from the source, the handkerchief. True. And by the time the police arrived to the court's home, Bula's symptoms had finally subsided. An ambulance tended to the woman as the officers began a search around the household. Unlike the other cases involving the mad gasser, this time they were successful. Lying in the grass a short distance from the door were small metallic items. They would later turn out to be identified as a well-worn skeleton key, which is a device that opens multiple doors. And there was an empty lipstick tube near the spot where the cloth had lain. Neither item belonged to the cords. It was the first and only physical evidence of the phantom. Huh. Now, could the mad gasser terrorizing Mattoon have been a woman? Someone with a grudge against the other women of the small town. It is true that the majority of the victims tended to be women left alone during the evening. During an age of male dominance, the fact that the entire town was being held in fear by a woman seemed beyond imagination. Yeah, especially for that day and age. Well, could it have been someone with motives of a romantic intent? The idea of a stalker, or as you mentioned earlier, a peeping Tom, who is capable of immobilizing his victims, leaving them powerless, unable to stop him, terrified the population even more. A chemical analysis was even performed on the cloth from the incident, but came to no conclusions. Whatever it was, it was made of chemicals never before seen by science. The creator would have had to be a genius. A mad genius. A mad gasser. Sorry. <laughs> 
you're exactly right. Because the Mad Gasser seemed to have no fear of the authorities and became even bolder in his nightly attacks. While the police officers were questioning the Cords couple, another woman in another part of town was hearing an intruder at her bedroom window. She was able to identify the sound of screening material on her window being cut as if with a knife. And before she could sit up from her bed, the same unidentified sickly sweet gas oozed into her room, rendering her immobile instantly and unable to move any of her arms or legs for several minutes. She was completely helpless before the mad gasser. Six more attacks were reported on the following night. The mad gasser was operating at will through his victims now mainly focused on the residencies located in the North Street area. He gets around. He does, and he seems to be unstoppable. In one case, Robert Daniels was aroused from sleep by noises outside of his home at one in the morning. It sounded like metallic scraping. And when he looked out of his bedroom window, he saw the tall, slender figure holding an unidentified metallic implement. The figure was leaning in through the open window of the house next door. Realizing instantly who it was he was seeing, Daniels grabbed his clothes and made his way to exit his home. In the few seconds it took Daniels to find his way outside, the gasser had made his escape. That's because he's quick. Or I kind of wonder if maybe the gas slows everyone down. It does have a paralyzing agent, so what if the gas slows everyone else down and he just seems to be able to disappear that quick? Yeah, but this guy wasn't affected. It was his next-door neighbor. This is true. And he came to the neighbor's open window, and he choked on the faint odors coming from inside. He discovered 60-year-old Fred Goebel, his neighbor, was prone on the floor in the middle of his kitchen, coughing and choking nonstop. Daniels cried out for help, but it would be a further two hours before the effects of the attack subsided, with Goebel having no memory of what had happened to him. If he had seen his attacker, the gas effects removed the knowledge from his mind. So now, even more than paralysis, could the gas have amnesia effects? explaining why very few people saw the mad gasser for himself. The attacks persisted even on the next evening, and the latest victims resided at the home of the principal of the local grade school, Miss Francine Smith. She and her sister Maxine informed the police that they heard a weird buzzing sound before a thin blue vapor suddenly drifted into the bedroom. They were instantly paralyzed and helpless as they lay in their beds, even as the mad gasser made his return, gazing at their petrified forms for an extended period through the bedroom window. After he was satisfied, he vanished into the night. The two women's descriptions confirmed the bare details that the police already had and they were no closer to capturing him than they were on the first attack. Chapter 5. The Powerless Police The police reports concerning the Mad Gasser were non-stop, 
regardless of if it involved a toxic paralyzing gas or not. For example, one local woman phoned the police near midnight to report that a tall, thin man had tried to force his way through her front door. The man ran off when she began screaming. There was no instance of gas or paralysis, yet the blame still fell on the mad gasser. These stories continued to fuel the growing panic regardless if they conclusively involved the mad gasser of Matoon or not. The community grew impatient with the local police's inability to capture the shadow. Anger grew with each new attack. The police commissioner begged for citizens to get a grip on themselves as armed citizens started patrolling the streets at night. Rude! Now, despite the increased police activity and the patrolling citizens, the mad gasser continued his ways and he prowled Mattoon. Whoever or whatever it was, there would be a total of 25 separate attacks on homes over a two-week period. Rumors were flying that the gasser was a mad lunatic, a being from outer space, or even a vengeful demon sent to attack the God-fearing people of Mattoon. The police commissioner's pet theory was that the mad gasser was an eccentric inventor, However, his theory seemed not sensational enough to the public and was soon forgotten. The attacks by the Mad Gasser hit an all-time high when on Saturday, September 10th, there was two attacks on the same night which left a total of five people temporarily paralyzed. The police force had had enough now, and by the next morning, they were taking the claims of attacks more and more skeptically rather than truthfully. They started pointing to the absence of solid evidence. As further complainants were instructed to undergo examination at the Mattoon Memorial Institution before the police would begin any investigations of the mad gasser, it seems that the police was now calling anyone who saw the mad gasser insane. Oh, God. And had to have a psyche valve. Wow. That's one way to throw it under the rug. Well, basically, the chief of police, C.E. Coe, decided that since they could not locate the mad gasser, that he just must not exist, and that the victims were mentally affected. Uh, they were mentally affected. Yes, that is true. Well, he figured that it was not his fault or his police fault that they couldn't catch the mad gasser. Well, of course not. It never is. Well, the Journal Gazette, which had been the first supporters of the existence of the Mad Gasser, changed their tune uh, about the existence without any cause. The chief editor now took a stance that the cases were nothing, merely mass hysteria, and the tall, thin, mass man dressed in black did not exist at all. <laughs> the police and the newspapers now denied that the Mad Gasser existed. The September 11th edition printed a headline which read that, quote, many prowler reports, few real. Now, here's what's most interesting about that newspaper or edition. In that very same edition of the paper was another article about two women who were victims 
and were treated at the local hospital, including one who said she was gassed while at the movies. The newspapers seem to be claiming that he does not exist on one page and claiming that he does on another. Calls reporting new attacks by the mad gasser were unheeded and simply dismissed as false alarms by the police. No officer ever investigated the homes and not even a case substantiated by a doctor who went to the victim's house and smelled the gas himself warranted any further investigation. The mad gasser of Mattoon was ignored. Wow. The Mattoon chief of police gave a press conference on the morning of September 12th to tell reporters, quote, Local police, in cooperation with state officers, have checked and rechecked all reported cases, and we find absolutely no evidence to support stories that have been told. Hysteria must be blamed for such seemingly accurate accounts of supposed victims. He further explained that the odor of carbon tetrachloride had been carried on the wind from a nearby chemical plant. Oh, that must be it. According to him, it was. <laughs> These were harmless, but were the culprit behind the sickly sweet smells being reported, not some demon roaming the alleys. The Atlas Imperial Diesel Engine Company chemical plant refuted his claim, stating that no one in the factory had ever reported any illnesses because of gases. Yeah, I think it would have started there. <laughs> Police Chief Cole's statement that the attacks of a mad gasser was all a case of mass hysteria came off as a little insincere. Now, this official denial of his existence did not stop the mad gasser as it made one last house call. On the evening of September 13th, Almost two weeks after the first case, a witness saw a woman dressed in man's clothes spray gas through a window into the bedroom of Bertha Birch. And on the next morning, Mrs. Birch and her adult son discovered high-heeled shoe prints in the soft dirt under her bedroom window. FBI agents from the nearby Springfield office finally arrived in the town on the night of September 13th despite the police chief's assurances that no mad gasser existed. The FBI never gave any statements or publicly addressed the citizens of Mattoon regarding the mad gasser. But since their arrival, there have not been any further attacks in Mattoon. The last words regarding the mad gasser were on September 14th when the paper published a headline saying, all quiet on the Mattoon's gas front. <laughs> okay. It is also possible that the culprit was known and taken away by the FBI to be drafted into scientific service for the wartime service, ending his or her reign of terror on Mattoon, but continuing his experiments for the Army. Regardless of the reasons for the attack or the ceasing of it, no one was ever publicly identified. Chapter 6 The Misfit Chemist The last attempt to name the mad gasser of Mattoon comes from a hypothesis of author and high school chemistry teacher Scott Maruna. 
Maruna published a book about the Mad Gasser attacks in 2003 entitled The Mad Gasser of Mattoon, Dispelling the Hysteria. In his work, he wrote that, after extensive research, the attacker was an antisocial local misfit by the name of Farley Llewellyn. Farley. I know, with a name like Farley, you would expect him to go evil. Now, Farley was the son of a very respected grocer, considered a pillar of the community. Although his father was esteemed, the son never quite fit into the Mattoon community and was an outsider of the public. The reasoning for this was that Farley was believed to have an unnatural fascination with harmful and noxious substances, and that many of the households that were targeted contained either his classmates or teachers. Farley wanted revenge on the Mattoon residents who had ostracized him because it was seems that he was a homosexual, and this could connect him to the woman-shaped footprints and the lipstick case. <laughs> oh, my God. So the mad gasser could have been a uh, cross-dresser. The amateur chemist was tall and thin, much like the description of the man in the shadows seen outside the Kearney household. He also graduated with a chemistry degree from the University of Illinois, and he had built his own laboratory in the trailer in which he lived. His experiments had even once caused an explosion, though harmless, was enough to frighten his quiet neighborhood, making him even more of an outcast. If such a man fit the profile of a mad gasser, then why was he never arrested? While he was a suspect, the police were watching him, and he was identified as being at home when some of the attacks occurred. He had the perfect alibi. To this day, it is unclear who was responsible for the attacks, if anyone. No mad gasser of Mattoon was ever found. So yeah, blame the gay guy. Poor kid. That's exactly what they did. Oh, I mean, this was the 1940s. True, true. Being homosexual in the 1940s was a death sentence. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting. It's not one I've ever heard of before, so definitely. Strangely enough, the Mad Gasser and Mattoon is only one of other areas that have had a prowler going through the neighborhoods and attacking people with noxious gases. Really? Yeah. It's actually seems to be pretty common in some cases. Okay. And maybe some of those we'll explore. Interesting. Now, it is highly possible that there was a malevolent phantom prowling the dark alleys of Mattoon who is determined to create chaos and panic and do this as quickly as possible. There were mysterious cases similar to the Madgasser Mattoon, and with the progression of scientific understanding, there seems less and less potential for a repeat of the two weeks in the small Illinois town. However, that does not mean you should leave your bedroom windows open before you go to sleep at night without considering the potential that the dark shadow is still out there, moving through the night like a cat, spraying his Swedish gas to paralyze the next victim of the mad gasser of Mattoon. Wouldn't it be prowling like a skunk? I think you're right. Thank you. Yeah, that sounds much better. Yeah. <laughs> 
Now, before we go, I want to remind everyone that we are on social media and would love to hear your stories and opinions about the Mad Gasser of Mattoon. Do you believe that there was a person roaming the neighborhoods at night, pumping unidentified gases into the homes? You can reach us on our Facebook page, Within the Mist Podcast. We are also on Instagram, plus we have an email at withinthemistpodcast at gmail.com for any of you who would like to share your stories. We hope you enjoyed our tale of the Mad Gasser of Mattoon, and we'll come again for another episode. Until then, watch the windows, because it might be that there is someone there, and remain constantly curious. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, guys.